0: You know, I really think Paul would have been a good lawyer. Um, And I think the book of Romans is a good example of why I believe that. He has a way of logically laying out truth. Systematically, point by point. And he does it in a way to bring understanding, but also to bring conviction and response to the Word. Um, For example, for the last two and a half chapters... He's been bringing us a case, a little mini-trial on the whole doctrine of justification by faith. This little mini-trial, as he t- He's bringing the, the evidence for us to consider, is uh, started back in chapter 3, verse 21. It's, uh, he laid out the case of how is a person made right with God? Isn't that a practical question? How can we know that we're right with our Creator well, and the answer is the great doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, and, he, and he starts laying that out in chapter 3, verse 21. And he laid this case out and, uh, in such a way that he says, well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not by keeping the law. It's not by rules and regulations that you're made right with God. It's not by works. It's uh, But we're justified by faith, simply by trusting in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And so our Lord's death, Jesus' death, is a substitutionary death where He died on behalf of a people. He paid the penalty of the sins of a people. And that all who believe in Him, we see that not only are they forgiven and they're removed from condemnation, but, but they also are are, are blessed by, by His righteousness, which is important. Impute it to them. That's one of those words, imputation, where it's put to their account. And so if you're a Christian here today because of the doctrine of justification by faith, you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And as you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins have been put on Christ, imputed to Christ, and He's paid for them. And then when that happened, the gavel of heaven came down, and God said, not guilty, and you're forgiven. And then, so now there's the imputation again where then Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. And God treats you as if you were in right standing with, with Him and, and as if you're holy, but, but we're not, as we're going to see as we go through the, the passage. It's only by way of imputation. So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are justified. Boom, once and for all, right? Uh, you don't need to be re-justified again week after week. So we saw that Paul brought witnesses, like any good lawyer would, to the witness stand. And we saw during those two-and-a-half chapters, He brought Abraham, and then He brought David to us to show this is nothing new. This was how God always justified people in the Old and the New Testament. And then when we came to chapter 5, we saw He brought in a picture into the courtroom, a portrait of two people. One was Adam, and one was Jesus Christ. And we saw last time how that there's two heads. There's federal heads. There's there there are two uh, two heads of, of, of a people. One is Adam, who's the head of what the whole human race, right? Everybody. So, is there any exceptions in this room? Are, do we all were we born under Adam? All every one of us under Adam. But there's another head, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we saw that the word rep- representative came in here. And we saw how it is that all who were, in, who were born, Adam was their head. He was, he, he, he's the one who, in fact, uh, represented us by God. He was appointed to represent you and represent me in the Garden of Eden. And there was going to be a, a test brought to him, and that is this. One law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, the day that you eat of that tree, what happens? You're going to die. So don't eat or you die. And don't sin or you die. And then not only that, since you're the representative head of all of mankind, guess what? We all sin and we all died when when he did. And that's why when we were born, we were born sinners. Adam's sin was imputed to us. And we're all guilty and we all die. And it's because of that one sin of Adam. So we, we saw that last time. Well, today, and of course in the representative head of Christ, we're going to see as well today, He's going to remind us that Christ is the representative head of a people as well, Uh, people that He died for, a people that He paid the penalty for their sins, a people where He brings forgiveness and also righteousness. Now, think of these last four verses that we're coming to today. 18, 19, 20, 21, think of these as Paul's closing argument as he builds this case for the doctrine of justification by faith. You know, think of a courtroom setting. You know, some of my trial books uh, would tell us that uh, back in the olden days, the 1800s, late 1700s, on on a big case, it would not be unusual for an attorney to give his closing argument you know, his final summary and persuasive arguments at the end of a trial for up to two days. <laughs> Can you imagine? Now, the, the newer trial books say, no, 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 that's not right. That uh, you're not going to persuade anyone beyond 30 minutes. Uh, if you're going to try and change anyone's uh, mind. So I'm going to try and keep that in mind today. But I think Paul had that in mind <laughs> when, when he did limit his closing arguments to only four verses. So, so let, let, let's try and... Keep it within within a t- in a timely way. Uh, let's pray that God might use this this closing argument of the Apostle Paul uh, to not only show how glorious this doctrine is, but if you're here without Christ, to bring you to, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, and that we all as Christians wouldn't be here with more head knowledge about. Oh, boy, do I know a lot about justification by faith. But a, but a knowledge that sinks down into our hearts and our lives and our emotions and our worship and our obedience to Him. Uh, the, I broke these these two verses down or four verses down into two sections, uh, just a summation, verses eighteen and nineteen, and simply his conclusion in verses twenty and twenty-one. Spent way too much time trying to get the same le- letter in front of both of those principles, and I gave up. So that's that's why one starts with an S and the other starts with a C. And if you're real smart on those things, you can tell me after church how you did it. But let's look at the summation first. Notice how he opens it up. He opens it up with therefore. Now, those are words of summation. You know, he's connecting what he's about to say in verse 18 with what he's already said in verses 12, 13, all the way through 17. And we saw that there he told us about these two representative heads, these two federal heads, Adam and then Jesus. And we saw how that Adam was the federal head of all the descendants, all all of the human race. And and we're going to see that Jesus was the head of a redeemed people. So in Paul's closing arguments here, he's going to review that. He's going to summarize it again. And so if we weren't able to pick it up last time, hopefully he'll bring more clarity or the pastor will bring more clarity than he did last time as well. And he begins with Adam, starting again with Adam, the federal head of the whole human race. And there he says this, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men. So the one trespass was was committed by who? Adam. So by Adam. Adam's one trespass, that's going off the path and uh, into sin. So by Adam's one sin, uh, it led to the condemnation of all men and ladies and boys and girls, the whole human race. By Adam, one act of departing from the tracks of obedience is one act of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was told not to. He saw it. He smelled it. He touched it, he picked it up, it looked good, pleased his flesh. He bought the lies of the enemy who said, if you eat this, you're going to become like God. You're not going to really die. And boom, he ate and he died. He sinned. And when he sinned, in that one act, led to the condemnation of what? All of men, all of mankind. And here's that word imputation. His sin was imputed to you. His sin was imputed to me, It was imputed to all of mankind, it was put to our account. So that we're, we're, we're now seen by God as sinners, we weren't even born yet. We hadn't done anything wrong ourselves, and yet the moment you were born, you were born and, and considered a sinner by what? By imputation. Therefore, he can say here in verse 18, all are condemned. All. All die, and that means that you sinned before you were born, and uh, before you ever entered the world, you were you were an Adam. And then, when you come into this world, you were born in the, in, in, the, in sin, and you're born to die. And we talked about how a little baby, when they come into the world, you say, "Well, why would a little baby die, even before they're able to know what's right and wrong, or make a you know a conscious sin in their heart and life?" They were born guilty because what they too were in an adam and the sin of adam was imputed to them and so then he takes us to jesus and he compares the second head and jesus is the exact exact opposite so he says in verse 18 one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men and so they're just like in adam his one act of disobedience resulted in condemnation for everybody in the world so too Jesus Christ by his one act of righteousness led to justification and life to all men now there's a couple of questions we got we have to ask if we're going to properly understand this verse first of all what, what is the act of righteousness that Jesus did that would lead to us being justified and have eternal life And uh, notice in verse 20, he, he talks about, here he talks about the act of righteousness. Actually, verse 19, he talks about obedience, the same thing, his act of obedience or his act of righteousness. Now, you might know the answer to this in your own mind, but maybe you don't. So, when Jesus did one act of disobedience, I'm sorry, obedience, God forbid, it never happened. Just see if you're listening. One act of obedience. He did one act of righteousness. What comes to your mind? What would you say that one act is? What is it, what's the one thing that He did that would bring justification in life for all men? Well, it's interesting because you take this word obedience of Christ, and the theologians like to break it into, into two categories and, and two realms, if you want, during his life. Active and passive disobedience. Uh, and, and, and Christ was obedient in both ways. His active obedience, try to track with me here, his active obedience was this. That is, when Christ came into this world as the Son of the living God, He perfectly kept the law in thought, in word, and in deed. He, he was completely obedient to the moral law of God throughout his whole life. But also there's a passive there's a passive obedience of Christ, and that usually refers to that act of Christ in sacrificing Himself for the sins of all of His people, His death on the cross, His His sacrificial death on the cross. Um, and we know that He was obedient. He, he laid down His life. Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself and He became obedient obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. And so the question might, when we think of this one act of righteousness, this one act of obedience that gives us forgiveness, righteousness for ourselves, justification, what, what is it? Which one? Is it His perfect keeping of the law while He walked on this earth? Or is it was it His sacrificial death on the cross? Or was it both? And I always like the both answers because that way you don't have to come hard down one way or the other. But I believe in this case that one act of righteousness might be considered kind of the umbrella act of obedience and the obedience of keeping the moral law all the way through the end of his life where he actually kept the, the, the direction of his father to lay down his life and his obedience and his sacrificial death. In John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And that's everything. Everything that the Father gave Him to do. And so from cradle to cross, you know, I would consider that His act of righteousness is His act of obedience to the Father. And both are important and both are essential to your salvation. Uh, Paul's laying... Putting out some theology for us here, isn't he? And I, I was talking to someone last week and they said, Well, I, I don't see why this theology is so important. Why do we all get bogged down in theology in these sermons? Well, I'll tell you why, is because theology is simply the study of God. I mean, could there be anything more important than knowing God? I mean, here our theology is, is knowing salvation. Could there be anything more important than knowing? how we're saved and why we're saved and all the ins and outs of why God redeemed us as a people? I mean, if not, you're left with something like, oh, I just, Gospels asked Jesus into my heart. And that, that's, that's how thick or how, how detailed your understanding of the work of Christ is, and, and it's much greater than that. And Paul's letting us see that by way of these two and a half chapters. I say both are essential, his obedience to the law and also his sacrificial death, because they both lead to the justification in life for all men. When you're you're brought, and I say brought because it's God's work, when you're brought to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are imputed to Christ. And when your sins are imputed to Christ, or you, you, then He paid for those sins and they're forgiven. And then His righteousness is imputed to you and put to your account. And now all of a sudden you believed in Christ. That moment you believed in Christ, you stand before the Heavenly Father. He sees you as righteous. He treats you as righteous. And, uh, and then beyond the grave, we're going to see that uh, judicially you're going to be declared justified forever by the glory under the glory of God now i want to look at this next part here because notice what it says it says carefully it says that he um, one act of the righteous act led to justification and and life for all men do you see that now does that strike you When you think about what you know about the gospel, what you know about salvation, what it's saying is Jesus Christ died on the cross, substitutionary death, so that all men might be justified, that all men might have what? Everlasting life. And the ladies say, well, that's not fair. It would also mean all all of mankind. I mean, I don't know if that surprises you or not. But that's what a quick reading of this would tell us, isn't it? Adam and Christ side by side. Adam took the sin of all of mankind. And then Christ comes into the world. Now he died for the sins. And, and now all of mankind is justified. I mean, it sounds like Christ's death is saving everybody. I mean, including the 98% of people in Cody right now who aren't even worshiping him, who aren't even going to church today like you are. So we need to stop. Stop. And just ask ourselves for a moment, when Paul uses the word all and many in verses 18 and 19, did Christ's death on the cross save all of mankind? Try and answer that in your own mind. We shouldn't be surprised that verses 18 and 19 are used as one of the proof texts, uh, strong proof texts for those people who believe in what's called universalism. And universalism is the belief that everyone, in the end, is going to be saved. All of mankind will be saved because Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's a belief that's, uh, in modern Christian circles today, is gaining some steam. It's gaining traction. It's kind of a growing belief today. I mean, it kind of fits in well with the idea of no absolute truths and uh, uh, it's very common today. It really regained a, a resurgence in uh, starting about 1999 under what was called the New Millennium Movement, that uh, there was kind of a resurgence of, of this whole idea of universalism. And it's easy to see why. Well, this would be, wouldn't this be attractive? I mean, if you have universalism, there's no what? No hell. If you see universalism, there's no wrath. Uh, we see mankind being condemned... But we see a Savior coming into the world, and and wouldn't you expect that Savior to rescue everybody? And we all go to heaven. Isn't that what a loving God would do? Would He save some and not others? I mean, would a truly loving and God full of grace, God, send anyone to hell? That's why we come to a passage like this. Uh, we need to stop, we need to pause, and ask ourselves, what does Paul mean? Because, you know, it sounds like you'd say first first reading, all means all of mankind. But then, you know, you, perhaps you have verses come into your mind and well, but what about this? What about that? What about this? And when you run across a verse like this, and you're, you're, you're interpreting, rightly dividing the Word of God, one of the principles, of, one of the hermeneutical principles that I think is helpful is to follow what's called the uh, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. That'll keep you from going off into air. You say, well, Don, what do you mean by Scripture interpreting Scripture? Well, you, you come across a passage where you're not quite sure what it means or it doesn't, you're not real settled or it's not that clear for you. And so then you go to other Scripture and see how that harmonizes with the other teaching that's very clear in the, in the Word of God. So, for example, if verses 18 and 19 were the only verses in all the Bible that talked about what happens to a person after they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would all be here today worshiping a God of universalism, right? I mean, that's what it says. We have no other verses to go by. That's the only two in the whole Bible, and so we'd be universalists and be very biblical, but as we read throughout the Bible and we read through the Scriptures, we discover that there, these aren't the only verses in the Bible that talk about what happens after a person believes or doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a whole catalog of verses that clearly teach another doctrine, that is the doctrine of eternal punishment. And I'll, I'll just read a few of them to you. I mean, I, I, I can spend the rest of the time just reading verses on, on eternal punishment. But Luke sixteen twenty two. remember the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And so Jesus taught that parable in Luke chapter 16. Uh, they both die. Uh, what happens when they both die? I mean, you have the rich man, and then you've got Lazarus, the, 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 the godly man, the poor man. It says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, a place of blessing after he died. The rich man also died, but he was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. So, so you have a separation that took place at death. You have the ungodly who, who end up in, in a place of torment, Jesus says, and you have the godly who end up in a place of blessing at, at Abraham's side. Most of you know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, so here's, here's one group of people, those who believe in Him shall not what? Perish, Perish but have everlasting life. So those who are trusting in Christ uh, have everlasting life. Verse 18, it goes on, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe it's right after John 3:16, is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God." Verse 36, "Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." So you see this divide. you see it, we saw it in Romans uh, chapter two, verse 12. You see it clearly in Second Thessalonians one eight, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire. So Christ is coming back, second return of Christ, inflicting what? Vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. It's eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and and from the glory of his might, you know those who talk about uh, universalism sometimes say, "Well, the people will go, they'll die, they'll go to a place of purification, and you know they got to go through some some rigmarole and kind of atone for some of their sins." But eventually, they'll all be saved. Well, you have to look at a word like eternal. What does eternal mean? If you're if you're going to hold on to eternal life, that's the same word that's used for eternal destruction. I mean, if you come up with eternal destruction being a temporary thing, then you've got to come up with your eternal life being temporary as well. The two go side by side. Revelation 20:15, and if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's forever. So you can see this great divide. So when you come to a word like many and you come to a word like all, we've got to harmonize that with the teaching of, of Paul. And how do we reconcile them? How do we reconcile when it says that, that all will uh, be justified and all have life? Well, this, this we know. Whatever the answer is, it can't be this. It can't be all of mankind, right? Because we just saw all the verses that said, no, it can't be everybody because there's going to be quite a few people who are going to pass off into eternal judgment. So it can't be, the, can't be everybody. So then who is, who is all? Who is, the, who is all? Who are the all? And I think you have to formulate the word all there is being used as a subset of the bigger mankind, all of mankind. But everybody in that subset are going to be the ones who are going to be saved. Uh, there's several views on this, and uh, actually there's more than the, these. But one view is that all might mean all kinds of people. Oh, it might mean there was Paul saying all kinds of Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free people, women, children, all kinds of people. Well, that that that's true, but it doesn't fit the context of, of this passage. He's talking about all kinds of people, distinctions of people. A second view is that Christ died for the whole world, and his atonement is sufficient only for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I don't want to get get you lost in that. You might have some footnotes in some of your Bibles that actually teach this. That is that when Christ died on the cross, He died for all of mankind. He paid the, the sin for the sins of all of mankind, but they're only going to be applicable to those who actually that that death will only be applicable to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that doesn't fit. Well, I won't go into a lot of detail, but that doesn't fit the context either. Because he's not talking about the potential all. He's talking about they will, in fact, receive, not potentially receive a blessing and eternal life, but will receive it, actually be made alive. So I believe the better view, and the popular, I think this is the proper view, is that all here really means all that Jesus Christ came to save. All those, when, when the Father gave the Son a people, and He said, I want you to save these people, and they enter into this world, and uh, Jesus came to, to what? Not only receive that, but to die for each and every one of the sheep that the Father gave Him to die for. You might say it's all of the elect, all those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, or from a human perspective, all those who be brought to savingly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. All, all, the, they're all the ones that are in Christ. Now, I want you to see this verse, th- these, these verses rule out any form of universalism. I don't want anyone to leave here today thinking, I wonder if universalism is right because it sounds good. I want you to leave here today thinking, no, universalism is wrong because it's bad because it's contrary to the Word of God. And I say this because there is a growing tendency today, uh, people within evangelical circles moving more and more towards universalism. You can go online and just type, be careful, Christian universalism. You'll get to see website after website after website presenting this point of view. You also go on uh, Amazon and you type in, uh, do a do a book search for uh, Christian universalism, you'll see page after page after page of books written in the last five to ten years on universalism. Uh, And you need to be careful because there's, there's, there's books on my shelf in my own library that are written by authors who are universalists. Now, if I didn't know that, I could easily be led astray and you might have some of these books on, on your bookshelf at home as well. And so being aware of these things is important. Knowing the theology is important. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a well known Christian devotional commentary written by William Barclay. He has 17 volumes on the, uh, the, the New Testament. And these are little Bible study books, and, and they're, they're very popular. And they're in all Christian bookstores. And I've got a whole set of them in my office. And we were warned in seminary about Barclay, because, but he said, you know, Barclay is good, but he's a mixed bag. With well, things he's good at, he's really good at, but beware, there's poisonous doctrines in there as well. So you just can't pick up a Bible study book on on Hebrews or a Bible study book on Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John. And, and yeah, I got in a Christian bookstore, I pulled it off the shelf. It's William Barclay. Beware. You know, he's a Scottish uh, theologian with a small t. And, uh, but he has, he's really good to give you some of the insights culturally, historically, background information about text. He's just, it's just really a wealth of information. Just stay away from the gospel. The, 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 these are the words from Barclay. He says, I'm a convinced universalist. I believe in the end all men will be gathered into the love of God he believed that some people would have to go to heaven via hell. He believed that even at the end of the day, there would be some on whom the scars remained. And so there might be a temporary time of punishment for some, but the road will eventually take them into heaven, and eventually they'll all be saved. You say, well, how do you get to believing this? I'll tell you how you get to believing in universalism. You get there by having an unbalanced view of the attributes of God. If you put too much weight, not, not that the, <laughs> it sounds, too much weight on the love of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, at the expense of the sovereignty of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the holiness of God, you'll end up with a skewed understanding of the gospel. Uh, these, all these attributes must be kept in perfect harmony with one another. Yes, He's a loving God. Yes, He's a gracious God. But He's also a righteous God, and He's a just God. And He's a sovereign God, and He's a, he's a holy God. And so all of that's weighed in with, with this understanding of universalism. You can hear it right from, right from the mouth of Barclay himself. He says, I believe that it is impossible, this is his rationale, to set limits to the grace of God. I believe not only in this world, but in the other world there may be. The grace of God is still effective, still operative, still at work. I do not believe that the operation of the grace of God is limited to this world only. I believe that the grace of God is is as wide as the universe. And so what he sees is that even after death, there's the grace of God, and the grace of God is going to accomplish all the grace of God will accomplish, and everyone will make it eventually into heaven. But that's not the teaching of the Word of God. Verse 19. "For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. The four connects us back to verse 18. It's, it's kind of an explanation of what I, what I just said, uh, kind of a paraphrase or a restatement, but it does give us a little bit more a little bit more uh, insight. He says, "In Adam, the headship have Adam." As by one man's disobedience, same word as tresp- for trespass in verse 18, the many, all of mankind, were made sinners. So he's kind of paraphrasing what we just saw. It does not mean that uh, many were made sinners. But many, even though it says were made sinners, but they were, or were made sinful, but they were made sinners. And this is important too because what, what, what Paul's saying here is it's not like he made everybody into sinners because if he made you a sinner, what would happen? God would no longer be a holy God and he, you know, he doesn't do bad things and he, he really doesn't make us to be evil or he would be evil. Instead, he imputed sin to us and we're all guilty before him. And so theology here, by the way, protects us against heresy. Uh, we have to be careful today. There are a lot of, there's a lot of bad doctrine being bantered around and blowing winds of doctrine blowing through the churches today. And uh, this one verse, actually, this one verb, "were made sinners. You see that? Inoculates us from a big heresy that's also creeping more and more into the church today. And, Going back in church history, there was uh, the heresy of Pelagianism. It was taught by a, a guy whose name was obviously Pelagius. You know, he straddled the fourth and the fifth century, and he taught that humans were free of the burden of original sin. Now, follow me. He taught that when you came into this life, you were free from any original sin. In other words. No sin of Adam is going to be imputed to you. You came in as a what? A clean slate. Because, he says, it would be unjust for any person to be blamed for another person's action. But that's what the Bible says. According to Pelagianism, humans were created in the image of God and had been granted conscience and reason to determine right from wrong and the ability to carry out correct actions. So, you weren't born with original sin. Adam's sin was not imputed to you. You were born with a a whiteboard of a heart, which was a clean slate. And then on your own, you started writing in your own sins each time you disobeyed. Now, that was uh, declared heretical by the church. I mean, we see recently, even in the United States, there was a man named Charles Finney who came in, modern revivalism, uh, taught this this perspective. And Finney has had a huge impact on modern evangelicalism today, on, on the way the gospel is being preached today. And so you have some of this teaching coming into the church today. And it, it, you say, well, is, is it a minor point that, uh, that the sin of uh, Adam is, is or isn't imputed to us? No, it's a major point. It's all tied up in that one verb, we're made sinners. Um, I'll give you. I mean, even churches can can you have to be careful here. I don't when we over we were at Trinity Bible Church in Powell We taught a a class on parenting. Um, for teenagers. Uh, they the particular teacher came out of Grace Community Church. We thought his material would be okay because we were the source. And so it was a video series, we're going through it, and then we get to, I don't know, one of the videos, one of the lessons said, you know, by the way, your teenagers came into this world with a heart that was a white slate. And the elders all looked at each other and went, oh, where do we turn this? On? You know, they came into it without, without any original sin. And we realized that we stopped the series right then and there because, you know, that's not true. You know, And and so you would actually, as a parent, you would treat your kids differently if they came into the life with a clean slate and they're now adding sins to their life, or if they came into this life uh, with guilty sinners from birth and with a fallen nature. So by one man's obedience, now we're going to see the contrast here, Jesus, all, as in verse 18, many in verse 19, will be made righteous. And so, all the elect, all those of you who are here today who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of one man's obedience on the cross and his life of obedience here on earth, you will be made righteous. Righteousness will be appointed to you. And be made here is an interesting word because it simply means to be appointed righteous. You'll be appointed righteous. You'll be inaugurated as righteous before the Heavenly Father. Not that you are perfectly righteous, but you will be seen as righteous and treated as righteous. You will be cleared of all charges. And we come to number two here in our outline. We're going to come to the conclusion as he winds up this great doctrine of justification by faith in verse 20. Now, the, now the, he says he's switching gears here. The law came in to increase the trespass. And here's the final contrast between Adam and Christ before the end of the chapter. Now, the word now should grab your attention. Now, okay, so now, okay, Paul, what now the law came in to increase the trespass? I believe that what happened at this point is Paul is writing to a church, right? The church is where? In Rome. Who's in the church? Jews. Who's in the church? Gentiles. And so he's. He's always pivoting back and forth, you know, speaking certain things to the Gentiles, speaking certain things to the, to the church who are Jews. And I think at this point, he's at a point where he's saying, you know, I can hear the Jews at Rome getting ready to say an objection. They're going to say something. They're going to object to something here now. I, I think I know. I'm a Jew, and I, I, I think I really understand what, the, what their objection might be, and that is this, Paul, what about the law of God? You say a person's condemned because of who? Adam. You say a person's going to die because of Adam. If a person's going to be forgiven and have everlasting life, it's going to be because of Jesus. Well, where does the law come in? If the law doesn't condemn, if the law doesn't bring everlasting life, if we can't earn our way to God, why did God give us the Torah? Why did He give us the moral law of God? You know, we saw this earlier in Romans, why it is that most Jews, I mean, we have to understand, they thought, you know, when they were given the two tablets and they had the law of God, they felt just the very gift of that law to them by God was sufficient for them to be saved. Not obey it, just they had it. They're blessed by God. And now if the whole world is condemned, if... Justified by faith, in Jesus Christ, what role does the law play then? If it isn't to condemn, what's the purpose of it? The law came in, he answers the question. And By the way, in the original, this word has a prefix para in front of it, which literally means the law came in alongside of. the sin, the trespass, to do something additional. It wasn't the main thing. It was, it was kind of the, a thing that was brought in by God to just come alongside of what the main thing is, and that is uh, the sin of men. And it wasn't to make things better, but He brought the law in to make things worse. Look what He says, to increase the trespass. The law had come in alongside of of, of sin and sinners in order that sin might abound. The trespasses might increase. There'd be more sin. The law was never intended as a way to salvation. We see in 320, for the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Same with Galatians 3.21. So here's the question. This is another one of those, you got to think through this with me. I know we're getting a little into it, so, you know, our brains get tired, but try and wake up your brain to get through this one and, 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 and think of this. Then, how did the law of God cause our sins to increase? What did it do to make that happen? I mean, if law doesn't restrain sin, it actually promotes its rule in our life. And the law just kind of slipped in. He had a God-given role. it had a purpose. And this is a little... We've already looked at several purposes of the law early in the book of Romans, and I don't want to go over those today, but I think in the context right here, there's one particular area that Paul is looking at, and that is this. When we fell, we had a sinful nature, right? We, We came into this world with... With a fallen, sinful nature, with the law we now know something. We know God's will for our life. If you have the law, it was in your heart or on tablets. You know in detail. Adam had a law, didn't he? One, his code book was how you know size of a napkin. We have the law of God. We have the whole written law of God. It tells us what His will is morally for our lives having no other gods, uh, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, honor mom and dad, don't lie, don't covet. So we have all these laws, and they were given even after, after Abraham. But Abraham had one, one law in one, one sin, if you want to look at it that way. And initially, we were guilty of breaking one law. In one sin. But then came the law, the moral law of God later, and now we have a complete catalog of laws that God has given. And every time we break one of those laws, we're creating more sin. We're exposing our sinful heart, which has fallen and depraved, and here we are, there's sin all over the place now. Well, initially, there was only one. In fact, in some ways, I guess you could say that uh, when the law came, it uh, had the function of turning us, all of us, into little atoms. We had our own little sins. We had the law of God, and we broke each one of them, and we're responsible for them just like He was. And He transgressed, and all were condemned. But when the law of sin, the law, God now <clears throat> has given detailed listing of His moral law. And therefore, every time we sin, law, the sin increases. Now the ultimate purpose of the law wasn't so that we'll go around and have more sinners. That wasn't what God was doing, but listen, his next point, see how these two flow together. If we can see laws gaining, increasing, abounding, do you know what that does? Now that we know that, it helps us see that the grace that comes in response to God abounds even greater than that. That's His purpose. And He wants us to see that where their sin is growing, it's abounding because we're breaking the law left and right. Galatians 3.24, So then the law was our guardian. And then, of course, that would point us to Christ and our schoolmaster and that we might come to Him and He would justify us rather than the law. So the ultimate purpose was not, was not to make this more sin, but to really radiate His glory through His abounding grace. So here's some good news as we direct this back. God's grace, God's abundant grace, is more, is more to overcome and in, the increasing amount of sin that's in the world. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No matter how deep your sin hole is, God's grace is deeper. No matter how high the mountain of sin in your life, God's grace is higher. God's grace abounds more and more than any sin that you could ever do in your life. Every one of your sins, no matter what they were. You know, you might be sitting there this morning and you're listening and you're thinking and, and, you, and you're applying it to your own heart and and maybe you're not a Christian and you're saying to yourself, you know, this all sounds so wonderful, Don. God's grace is greater than all the wicked stuff I've done in my life. But you don't know all the wicked stuff I've done in my life. You don't know how bad my life has been. Uh, I told Sunday school class, I've broken all ten of the commandments. I know how wicked sin is. And I think if we all look into our own hearts, we know how wicked sin is. And here's Here's the trap. Don't, don't fall, if you're not a believer today, don't fall into this trap. Man, I'll tell you what, I look around this room, it seems like it's full of a bunch of good people. I like to be like them, I like to have the same relationship with God that they have. But God would never forgive me. I mean, He'd never accept me, all the stuff I've done in my life. My life's been a wreck. And I don't know all the sinful things you've done in your life. But if you feel in your heart that there's any one of them that's so great that God would never bring forgiveness to you, then you do not understand grace. And you don't understand God. And you don't understand salvation. I mean, look carefully at verse 20 if you have a Bible with you. Underline it. Highlight it. Put an exclamation mark by it. Where sin abounded, grace did what? Superabounded even more. And he had all of us in mind when he wrote this the worst of sinners. That's right, Paul was the chief of sinners. God delights in saving sinners, he superabounds in grace. You know, I think of men like uh, John Newton, Paul, uh, John Bunyan. Wicked sinners write books like Abounding Grace after God saves them. Isn't it amazing what God has done in their lives? Verse 21. So that, this is the final verse, as the sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so sin reigned in death under Adam, all mankind, but now in Christ. We have the reign there of, not of death but of life through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Before Christ came into the world, there was a reigning of death and a reigning of sin. No one could conquer it. No, no one could defeat it. It's going to happen. You're a sinner and you're going to die. And then the Savior came. And what did He do? So that we see Him coming in conquering death, conquering sin, and doing so with abounding grace. And now there's a new reign in our life. And the rain isn't to death anymore. It's a reigning unto life. And this grace produces righteousness, conquering sin, and conquering death. We have eternal life. Now, let me close uh, with a story. How many of you know Jerry Spence or know of Jerry Spence? Some of you do. If you've been in Wyoming a while, you probably do. If you're a lawyer, even if you're not from Wyoming, everybody knows who Jerry Spence is. I mean, he's one of the most famous uh, attorneys still living, who uh, lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. He has a little college called the Trial Lawyers College. And, I mean, if you want to be, be trained in, in, in trial work, uh, you, go, you go there, even af- after you're in a lawyer. But uh, Jerry Spence, on his closing arguments, has a story that he tells in almost every one of his cases. And maybe it's because it's a winning story that he tells it over and over and over again. But it goes like this as he's about to present his closing argument. He says, Before I leave you, I want to share with you a story I tell nearly every time in every case. It's a story of a wise old man and a smart-aleck boy who wanted to show up the wise old man as a fool. One day this boy caught a small bird. The boy had a plan. He brought the bird, cupped it between his hands. To the old man, his plan was to say this, Old man, what do do I have in my hand? To which the old man would answer, Oh, you have a bird in your hand, son. And then the boy would say to him, Old man, Is the bird alive or is the bird dead? And if the old man said the bird was dead, the boy would open the hands and the bird would fly away back into the forest. But if the old man said the bird was alive, then this boy would crush it in his hands and crush it again and crush it again until it was dead to show that the old man was a fool. But the old man wasn't as foolish as the boy thought. So the smart aleck boy sauntered up to the old man and said, Old man, what do I have in my hands? And the old man said, You have a bird, my son. Then the boy said with a uh, malevolent grin, wicked grin, Old man, is the bird alive? Or is the bird dead? And the old man with sad eyes said, The bird is in your hands, son. And of course then from there, Jerry Spence would say, Now this this matter, this trial is in your hands, jury. Or Paul, if he was telling the story, might say, This doctrine of justification by faith, this case that I've laid out to you for two and a half chapters in this book of Romans is now in your hands. And What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with this great doctrine of justification by faith? I mean, Paul has taken us into the courtroom. He's brought the evidence. He's brought the witnesses. He's brought the portraits of Adam and, and also Jesus Christ. We've seen that all in Adam are under condemnation. All in Christ have everlasting life and and righteousness. And what puts you under Christ is believing in everything that Christ has done on your behalf and trusting in that. And the good news is that all who believe in Christ, their sins will be paid for. They'll be accounted as righteousness and they have the gift of everlasting life so if you're here without the Lord, how how would you respond? How would you respond to Paul's wonderful, detailed, glorious description of justification by faith? Will you respond in faith, believing and trusting in Christ and receiving immediately forgiveness of sins and everlasting life? Or will you leave here in unbelief? My prayer is you'd flee to Him. You'd flee to Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. There'll be a quiet time in a moment where you just bow your head and you could just confess your sins to God. You could cry out to God and express your belief and trust in Him, believing that He died for the sins of His people. And then with a heart of repentance, turning away from those things that are contrary to His will. But most of you, I'm sure, are here as Christians And you're hearing the doctrine of justification by faith. But I was thinking it could be that you're weak in faith today. You profess Christ as your Savior and Lord. But as far as you see such assurance and such boldness in this doctrine, and yet you look into your own heart and you see the grips of sin. You look in your own heart and you see you struggle with things like, am I even a Christian and having any assurance of the salvation that, that we're talking about here? And for all of us, God brings us good news. A reminder to all of us that our salvation, Christians listen carefully, our salvation is not based on our obedience to God. It's not based on what we do as the songs we've been singing. It's based on what Christ has done. His righteousness, His work, His sacrifice. And the only thing the Bible calls us to do is to believe in Him. And if you're trusting in Christ, these things are true of you. Whether you feel it or not, they're true. And we've got to preach that back to ourselves as Christians over and over again, or or, or we forget that we're forgiven. You've been justified. Harris tense, point-in-time action, once and for all. You're justified. You're forgiven. You're treated as righteous. This is for all who believe. All are righteous. And all have everlasting life. Don't ever fall in the trap of thinking it's based on your works. Or I'm not living it up to, enough up to it. If you're struggling there, hang with us till next week. Because next week we're going to chapter 6. And starting off with the question, well then what do you say then? I mean, if it's this free, and if it's just such a gift, and it covers all sins, why don't we just all go out as Christians and do what? And sin. He's going to answer that next time. But today, we, if we're leaving here wondering, gee, it sounds too easy, then you're right where you want to be because it's hard. It required the very death of Christ Himself. But for you, it's simply believing and trusting in Christ. Romans 8, all who are called, he justified. All he justified will be what? Glorified. Assurance over and over again. None will be lost. All will be saved. The glorious truth should flood the heart of every Christian and produce in us hearts of worship, joy, and praise. Father, we close today just thanking You for this wonderful study, this mini-trial that Paul put on to persuade us and to show us all that that we need to know and believe in regarding this doctrine of justification by faith. How can a person be made right with God by believing in Your Son and His work alone on the cross? Oh Father, we thank you for the gift. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for all the work you are doing in us. The Spirit of God who is enlivening us to to live out this life pleasing to you. So we ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.